The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. If you could please stand with me, we're going to read God's Word. And our passage for this morning is the very end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 through 25. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. You can be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We know we need this word Thank you that you have much good appointed for us in your word, through your word. So come, Holy Spirit, be our true teacher. Open our eyes to things to which we were previously blind. Soften our hearts. Call us into a new sort of life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the heartbreaking realities in this world is that just because life-giving resources exist and are intended for certain people, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that those resources will be put to the use for which they were intended. So just because there may be an ample supply of food or medicine or clean water or, um, or even reinforcements in a, in a critical military campaign, just because those resources exist it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll get where they need to go on time or be used by the people for whom they're intended. Even if it does get to them in time, will it be utilized in the right way? So there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think of how in many parts of the world, um, humanitarian aid is amply given, but then either warlords or corrupt governments just steal it and misappropriate it, and then their people still starve and perish. Or, when you think about resources not getting where they're intended um, or being used in time, think about someone who lives way out in the country, really rural area, and they're very sick and they need emergency medicine or an ambulance. But is their long driveway clear of yesterday's deep snow? Is their address clearly marked from the main road? Are the roads plowed and salted? And if not... The care may be available, but tragically not get to them and be used in time. Well, this morning we want to remember that our great God has given a generous, sufficient, abundant, lavish supply of 
everything we need for spiritual life. It's like food, it's like medicine, it's like clean water, it's like reinforcements for a critical battle, and it's called grace. The word grace that you find throughout your New Testament, it means God's favor, his benefits, his kindly disposition, his gifts that are freely given. And the presence or lack of grace, that's what makes the difference between spiritual life and death. Grace needs to be distributed and applied throughout the church. But how is that going to happen? How will that effectively happen? And here in the closing verses of the book of Hebrews, we get a little sneak peek into this relationship between the inspired author of the book of Hebrews and his first century audience. We know that he knew them, he had personally ministered among them, and in this interaction of these verses, we hear a little bit of, of um, some things that, that show us, like those in the position of receiving grace, is there anything they can do for the grace delivery man, so to speak, in order to make that transaction smooth and effective. And we also hear some things that maybe the grace delivery man can leave or do for the the grace recipients to make sure that they take full advantage of this package of life-giving supply that he's left for them. And those same dynamics are really in play for us today when we think about how grace is passed along and received in our own midst. So it's a two-way street, and we need to take seriously each part of the process, the giving of grace and the receiving of grace. So let's look at a slide to show us a rough outline of where we're going. Recipients of grace, they can aid the process by praying for the messengers of grace. They can also bear with the words of exhortation. And those who are bringing grace to others, trying to transmit that grace, they can pray with authority for those who are receiving the grace, and they can remind them of the larger context, the story in which this grace is being given to them. So we'll see that play out in the verses that follow. Let's start with what those who receive life-giving grace can do for their leaders and teachers. Verse 18 says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now we're not totally certain of the situation of the author. He seems to be separated from those to whom he's writing because of some difficulty either that he's trying to resolve for good or maybe something like a temporary house arrest has been imposed upon him. But whatever the case, he can't get to them right now. And he seems to be in a situation of some sort of temptation. He feels a need to watch his conscience, to watch it closely and to make sure that he's acting honorably. He doesn't want to take shortcuts or avoid hardship simply for the sake of comfort. And so he asks them to pray for him. Christian leaders are not invulnerable. They're made of the same stuff that you are. And the good ones will own that and will remind you of that too. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking about Christian ministry in 2 Corinthians, he asked, who is adequate for these things? Those who deliver grace to others have a target on their back. The schemes of the evil one are constantly seeking to corrupt them or discourage them or in any way neutralize the grace giver's efforts. Perhaps many church scandals could have been avoided if the congregants had been praying more faithfully for their leaders. You could also say perhaps more congregants would pray faithfully for their leaders 
if their leaders had been self-aware and asked for prayer. It goes both ways. Do you know how many people walk away from church altogether because they see moral failure in leadership or they, or they see unnecessary conflict in the church and it just drives them away? This is a huge issue. So if you cherish this local church being an avenue of transformative grace and you want that avenue of grace to stay open and to be functional for decades to come, you have to make sure you're praying for your leaders. And we see here the contents of a very important prayer that you can always pray for your leaders in this way, those who God has placed over you to influence you in some way. You can pray first for clear consciences. So you want leaders who are living consistently. They're not plagued by skeletons in the closet or patterns of hypocrisy in their lives. Now, a clear conscience doesn't mean that they do everything perfectly. but It does mean that once they realize an error, they do everything in their power to own it and to make it right. And another way to say the same thing is we want our leaders to act honorably. Again, that doesn't mean that they're flawless. But if they make mistakes, they then honorably take the burden of those mistakes on themselves rather than leaving others wrongfully hurt. So if you're going to keep receiving grace from your church leaders, they need to be leaders like this, acting honorably, living with a clear conscience. Because if they're not, then the message of Christ is going to be discredited and emptied of its power by someone who has just made ministry a means to their own protection or personal advancement. But how are leaders with this sort of honest self-reflection, how are they raised up? How are they cultivated? I think it's just kind of a given that most young men have a bit of a bull in a china shop tendency. So how do they put that away? How do they grow into something more deliberate, more perceptive? Certainly, you can help through conversation, right? Talking to those leaders, um, encouraging them, asking hard questions about why they did this or that. Um, those conversations are welcomed. They can lead to growth. But I would say that's the second most effective way to help your leaders. The most effective thing to do is to pray for them. Those prayers will not only unleash God's transformative power in those leaders' lives, it will also keep your heart from growing bitter you'll remember that this is ultimately God's project, and he is more than able to make straight whatever seems crooked. So the self-aware leader who wrote the book of Hebrews, he knew that he needed these sorts of prayers. And I certainly know that I need these sorts of prayers. Well, pray, pray that I would have a clear conscience. Pray that I would act honorably. And pray for Pastor Victor... Pray also for Elder Candidate Brett Paddock, really everyone who has charge over any area of ministry in the church. Pray that they would have a clear conscience, that they would act honorably. And this is the way we've been redeemed to live. And when we live in this way, it keeps open the avenues of grace so that you can keep receiving grace from the people God has appointed to pass it on to you. And the author here also asked them to pray for him to uh, be restored to them soon. It seems that there's some connection to his 
acting honorably and, and being restored to them, maybe because the author himself was under trial or testing by the Roman authorities. Whatever the situation, this is a reminder to us that we can pray for the presence of those who are instruments of grace to us. We don't technically need them. Like God can, if they're taken away, God can appoint new messengers anytime. But this particular teacher already knew the congregation, and so their hearts go out to, the, to him, and they're praying for his restoration. And God affirms these sorts of desires, sentimental as they may be. He, he cherishes our relationships like we do. And, and so he delights in answering these sorts of prayers um, much of the time. Not always, but much of the time. And in answer to those prayers for someone to be restored, um, to, to be able to be in our presence again. Grace can continue to flow through those same channels where it has in the past. So prayer is a massive thing that these hearers can do to make sure that the life-giving grace of God will keep flourishing through the hands of God's messengers. Whenever you're in a position where you stand to be ministered to by someone else, I'd encourage you to just take a moment and pray for them. Before you go to the women's retreat, pray for the, those who are coordinating it. Pray that God would use them in that role. Before you go to life group, pray for your leader. Pray for the host. Before you come to church each Sunday, even while you're sitting in your seats before things start, in those moments, use them. Don't just space out. Pray for everyone who's going to be contributing to the worship service in some way. And the more we get in that habit, the more that, that sort of prayer is just a regular impulse of what we do, then I think we'll see more and more grace bearing fruit in all of our lives. Prayer keeps that channel of grace open and free. But okay, assume that the author of Hebrews is restored to them and um, <clears throat> he fought off temptation, he acted honorably, and he's able to minister with a clear conscience. What then? Is there anything else that these recipients of grace can do to make sure that the food or medicine of, of God's grace can accomplish everything that it was meant to. What else can they do? They can listen well. Here we'll skip forward to verse 22, which says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. When we hear words that challenge us, each of us has a choice. Are we going to bear with that word of exhortation? Or are we just going to dismiss it because... Well, our ego feels uncomfortable. When he's talking about this word of exhortation, he's really referring to the whole book of Hebrews. We mentioned in the first chapter that, yes, this is a letter, but Hebrews is also structured like a sermon. So if you were to just read through Hebrews from start to finish, it'd take you about 45 minutes. <clears throat> it's one thick word of exhortation. And in Hebrews, you might remember that there was a lot that was hard to bear with. Some of it was difficult because it was hard to understand. Think about the bit about the, the wilderness generation missing out on the Sabbath, or the comparison to Melchizedek, or the details about the tabernacle and the, the Day of Atonement. Like These concepts are just hard. They take work to wrap your mind around in order to, but we, we have to. We have to wrap our minds around it because there's an application there for us. There is something that's true for us in Christ that we won't grasp unless we do the hard work of understanding these details. And that need for hard thinking, that can hurt our ego if it makes us feel unprepared or unknowledgeable. 
So we're tempted to just kind of brush past these words at surface level so that we don't have to humble ourselves and cry out for help. But what would bearing with thick concepts look like? It wouldn't just brush past a sermon or lesson and say, well, I didn't really understand half of that, but yeah, better luck next time. No, there needs to be a sort of urgency about learning these things. Like the same sort of urgency that you have when you encounter difficult concepts of other kinds. Like say there's a tax law that you really have to get your mind around in order for your business to succeed. Or you could think about like you've got a home, a home improvement project and you've got to get a pencil and paper out and do some math. Record the dimensions, record prices of, of materials, all of that. Um, maybe there's an admissions procedures for, for school or for a professional organization. You've got to understand that application. You've got to work to get your mind around what they're asking for. Or sometimes the, the hard work of understanding is in a relationship. Like you really care about someone, so you're sitting and listening to their problems, and you're trying to follow these details and involve people you've never met and, and understand their situation. Um, there's, there's a lot in life, a lot where there are hard details to grasp or to understand, but we do it. Even though we would prefer not to try hard at it, we do it anyway. And how much more should that be the case when the details concern the word of life? When it's God's plan of grace for our joy and flourishing, it's important enough to make yourself care. Which is why Hebrews 5 rebuked us, saying, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Don't be dull of hearing. Care. Take notes if it helps. Write down questions to ask later. Go over it again at home on Sunday afternoons. Bear with the Bible's exhortation to you. The word of exhortation can be hard to bear because the concepts are difficult. But even beyond that, the word of exhortation is hard to bear because it tells us we're not okay just the way we are. The trajectory we're on needs to be interrupted so the word of God confronts us. Specifically, the book of Hebrews offered us five warning passages. And I'm going to read excerpts from them again for you just so that you can be freshly confronted and offended if necessary by these passages. Chapter 2 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapters 3 and 4 said, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, if, Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of all of your hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
chapter 6 is quite intense, telling us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And it goes on to describe what happens to people who only seemed like they belonged to Christ, but actually had no roots to allow them to grow. When their hearts grow hard and they fall away, it says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Chapter 10 warned us that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then just a few weeks ago, we heard in chapter 12 the warning to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For he's about to remove all things that can be shaken our God is a consuming fire. So words like this can be hard to bear. They tell us we're in danger. They're saying that you can't take this casually. You have to care more than you do. You have to cling desperately to this only life raft that there is. God's rescue plan for humanity in Jesus Christ. So will you bear with this word of exhortation? Will you care more than you have? Will you grow in sober-mindedness? Will you realize the great danger that you've been snatched out of in Jesus Christ? And will you respond with a full heart of joyful thanksgiving and wonder? Or will it just be business as usual until you drift, perhaps without even realizing it yourself? So the effective spreading of God's grace requires prayer for those who are distributing that word of grace. Pray that they're freed to do their job without moral failures, without being hindered by circumstance. And the effective delivery of God's grace requires bearing with words of exhortation. Those receiving the grace have to bear with that word. Just like at that rural residence, you, you have to keep the snow cleared. You have to keep the address marked so that the emergency crew can make it through. And similarly, make sure that your hearts are cleared of any laziness or apathy or pride that would block the grace of God from getting through to your soul. It's not ultimately, if, if you ignore these warnings, it's not ultimately me or, or the author of Hebrews that you'd be thwarting. It's him who is speaking from heaven. That's who you'd be resisting if you don't bear with the words of exhortation that these scriptures bring. So that's what those receiving grace can do. They can pray, they can willingly receive. 
But now let's look at the other end. What does the distributor of life-giving grace need to do on his end? What's the role of a pastor, teacher, spiritual leader of any kind? How do, you, do they get those gifts of God through to you? Of course, they teach. Even the, the whole content of the book of Hebrews shows us like this material is necessary. This material had to be transmitted to us so that we can receive the grace of God that's packaged in there. But in these last verses, we also see a very important piece of the delivery strategy, and that's that those responsible for delivering God's grace can pray with authority. Pray for the recipients of God's word with authority. So I can pray for you, even as I'm preaching to you. And this is the meaning of a benediction or a blessing, such as the one we find here in verses 20 to 21. This is a tradition we see throughout Scripture that, that God gives authority figures this, the ability to serve as conduits of blessing to the people. So the first models of that were the, really the patriarchs as they blessed their children. And then in Numbers chapter 6, God spells out that the priests should say these words over the congregation of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So it's not magic. It's not like an incantation. It's, it's simply shepherds as subordinates of the chief shepherd, Jesus, passing along the grace of God to their people, which they're in the position to do. They're like middlemen. And in every epistle in the New Testament, every letter in the New Testament ends with some sort of declarative statement, either of blessing on the people from God or expressing on behalf of the people glory to God. So either a prayer of blessing um, for the people from God or a, a prayer of thanksgiving and, and glorifying God on behalf of the people. And this is exactly why we end each worship service with either a word of benediction. Benediction is Latin. It just means good speaking. Or um, sometimes it's less of a benediction and more of a doxology that we say at the end of the service, expressing glory to God on behalf of all of us. And we do this because you need to be left with a remembrance of the grace that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And you need to be left with a remembrance of the glorious nature of our God who is gracious toward you. In Jesus Christ. So being prayed for and being prayed with in this way that really reinforces the transmittal of grace all around. So let's look at the actual content of this benediction that we have for us here in verses 20 and 21. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's just pause there. So the writer is invoking the God of peace, God of peace. He wants his hearers to experience peace. And this isn't really talking about the absence of conflict with other people. It's talking more about the wholeness, the soundness that only God can give through his grace. You know, it's not a small thing that he's called the God of peace here. Because rightfully, he shouldn't be the God of peace toward us. We were rebels. We were his enemies. He should be the God of wrath toward us. 
But now we mercifully experience his peace because the blood of Jesus established a covenant relationship. He's the God of peace. He's also the God who brought our great shepherd Jesus back from the dead. He's unlimited in power. And the Father brought the Son back from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. So what this is getting after is that it was the satisfactory nature of the death of Christ that led to him being raised. The resurrection is like God's visible stamp of approval on what Christ accomplished on the cross. Sin had been atoned for, so sin required death no longer. Death had been defeated and and therefore could not hold Jesus any longer. And Jesus coming back from the dead to live as our priest and our shepherd forever, that's part of an eternal covenant, eternal. Not only going on forever, but also going back forever. Um, with this, like, it's, a, it's a covenant that was decided between the Father and the Son. Before the foundation of the world, it was decided that Jesus would be our atonement and our high priest. And it was enacted as the new covenant in these last days. So what that means for you is that this God of peace, whose blessing is being asked for, is being given here, This God of peace has literally altered the whole way that reality functions. And he has sealed eternal promises in order to be able to act in your favor, for your benefit. He's powerful enough to do anything that we ask. And he's favorable enough toward you in Christ to do anything that will be asked. It's it's amazing. And, And so what do you ask for from such a God who has that power, who has that gracious demeanor toward us. Where do you even begin? Well, our hearts long to live for him. And, and, and this is the very thing we were created for and rescued to do. And that's why this benediction prays, verse 21, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. So the big ask after the whole book of Hebrews is... God, equip them. Equip them to do your will. When we think about equipping, we tend to think about things that are really tangible, like, oh, maybe I need some sports equipment or, or computer training or um, like a handbook of techniques. But equipping here doesn't mean like just add some techniques, just add some knowledge. It's not like, oh, yeah, equipping, go get your Bible degree and then you're all good to go or read seven steps to a more godly life. No. Equipping here means that God is going to adjust you. He's going to qualify you fully. He's going to make your character complete. He's going to put your will in order so that what he wants becomes what you want. This is one of the mysteries of life in Christ, that God can work out his will within our wills, never hijacking our choices or puppeteering, but actually changing our desires. And that's really good news, because with God, you're never going to be disappointed about how he changes you. Every small transformation is going to bring you greater joy, and you will love who you are becoming in him. But it'll have to be his equipping. You can't become that person that you should be and that you want to be apart from his enabling power. His Holy Spirit will have to do that good work in you. He's going to make it so that you can do what he wants. 
He's going to make your deeds pleasing in his sight. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. We can't even do the good work of bearing with this word of exhortation and letting it bear fruit in us apart from the work of Jesus Christ and his spirit applied to our lives. He takes us from slavery to sin, and he takes us to holiness. He bought us from slavery. He bought us for holiness. That's the complete picture of salvation, and it's all his work. So the message of Christianity is never do God's will so that you can be at peace with God. That's not Christianity. The message of Christianity is be at peace with God through what Jesus did, and then you will finally be able to do his will. You see the difference? And the more we come to find our identity in what Jesus did to win our peace with God, then the more Jesus' life of pleasing the Father will be worked out in us. So, we saw that the, the author hopes that these people will bear with his word of exhortation. But with this prayer, he also just appeals directly to God himself, the one who ultimately is going to will and work within us to do his good pleasure. So, you know, people... Bear with this word of exhortation. God, make them bear this word of exhortation. Make this word bear fruit in them. That's sort of the dynamic here. And we need that same prayer. Because what's ultimately going to enable you to stop living for yourself? What's going to change you so that you stop using people to feel good about yourself and instead start loving people in the truly hard ways? What's going to bring you from good intentions to actual good works? Do you think you have that power for change within yourself? No. God is going to have to do that work in you, and he does it through Jesus Christ. And so this prayer for equipping and for our good work to play out through Jesus, it's a reminder for us here at the end of the whole book of its theme, the theme of Hebrews, the supremacy of Jesus. If God's peace comes to us only through Jesus, if our lives can be devoted to God in good works only through Jesus, then there's really only one thing absolutely essential in life, and that's to hold on to Jesus Christ, to keep trusting him, to keep confessing loyalty to him no matter what pressures may be mounting to tempt us to slowly drift away. Jesus is better. Jesus is everything. And that's why we say to him, be the glory forever and ever. So our messenger of grace has powerfully blessed the people with God's equipping of everything they need through Jesus Christ. Where could we go from here? Probably as an afterthought, he starts speaking of updates and um, saying hello to so-and-sos. But even in that, even in that sort of dialogue, we see a valuable role that the grace giver has, and that's reminding the people of the larger context in which they're receiving grace. I've said this before, and I'll say it many more times, that local churches languish when, it's, when people only think about their own local lives. We're meant to see that God is at work all over the place, in every context. We're meant to see that even though our little domestic lives may be boring, we're actually in the midst of cosmic spiritual warfare. And when you see the struggles of our brothers and sisters in other contexts across the city or across the world, 
it awakens in you this desire not only to assist them in any way you can, but also a desire to be about the same things that Christians are all over the world, in every context, rich, poor, all cultures. And it makes us want to be able to, to, to bear that same cost of being a Christian, even though the cost right now in our context is fairly low. And so even with this update about Timothy here, the author is extending grace to those who are receiving his letter. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So this is almost certainly the same Timothy that traveled with the Apostle Paul. We think this letter was written after Paul's execution, so Timothy continued just faithfully working uh, where Paul left off, and he encountered some of the same hardships. And the fact that the author of Hebrews is in a position to update us on Timothy means that he was practicing what he had been preaching at the beginning of this chapter when he said, remember those in prison as if in prison with them. And speaking of Timothy, he, he invites the church's prayers and he invites their correct perspective on how Jesus is better than anything that we could lose through maintaining our witness for him. So Timothy is a little bit of a, a role model Remember Timothy. And verse 24 continues that gift of helping them remember the larger context for their following Christ. Because if we try to be loners in the Christian life, we're never going to go to Christ outside the city. We're never going to bear the reproach that he endured. No, that kind of strength comes from receiving the example of others, from remembering that we're all in this together. So he says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. He's subtly reminding them, like, this grace that you're enjoying is a group gift. You're going to keep sharing this gift together. That's the way to make it to the end. And he wants them to know that even Christians in other places are watching and are praying for them as a group, are being strengthened by their example of faithfulness. So he adds, those who come from Italy send, your, send you greetings. It's not clear if the author is writing from Rome or if he's writing back to Rome and has people around him who also know his intended audience. But either way, we, we can see the connectedness between believers in different regions and their story, their story across the world or across the city. It's our story. We have the same story in Jesus Christ. So um, our hearts go out to each other. And when we remember that, then when unique pressures come against us in our own context, we have a much better chance of remaining faithful if we remember those in other contexts with whom we're bound as family. When you remember that great cloud of witnesses across all cultures and all circumstances, when you remember that they're cheering you on, it just helps you to keep going when things are hard. So, having passed along those greetings and those reminders, there's really not much more to say than grace be with all of you. And that could be viewed as sort of a shorter benediction, but it's also, when you think about it, it's the simplest possible summary of the book of Hebrews. Grace be with all of you. Hebrews has painted for us a number of pictures of Jesus showing his supremacy to every other construct that we might try to use to fill our need for a mediator. The book of Hebrews has given us the grace of fear, showing us the great cost of letting go and drifting away. And Hebrews has emphasized 
that we're meant to have confidence when we draw near to God. And yet also a stunned awe and a deep reverence that propels us into a worshipful response with our whole lives. And here with this benediction in in verses 20 and 21, we face the fact that we can't respond as we ought to in our own strength. God himself is going to have to equip us and work that out in us fully. So in short, the book of Hebrews has rightly oriented us, and, and that in itself is an expression of God's grace. We've been saved by grace, but he says, may grace be with you, because it's only by grace that we'll endure to the end. And that's an excellent way to end our studies in Hebrews, by realizing that the efforts we need aren't ultimately yours. They're not ultimately those of a teacher or a leader, but the efforts that we really need that actually make all the difference are what God does. His grace be with you removing all guilt and shame through the finished work of Christ, growing your confidence to draw near for mercy and help, freely equipping you to respond differently and better than you ever have before. And so may we also pray for each other like this and exhort one another and eagerly hear one another and remind each other of the larger context. And in that way, may we see the one resource that we really need, God's grace. May we see it continue to pass among us and flourish in our midst. So Lord, we ask that that is the reality that keeps going in this place, that we wouldn't put hindrances in front of your grace, but we would freely aid it on its way. We would receive it gladly. We would pass it around liberally. Lord, we know our need of you. We know we can't believe these truths and heed these warnings without the work of your spirit. So if any of us today, or if all of us today, are dull and languishing in our complacency, would you revive us, God? Would you wake us up? Would you cause us to care? Only you can do that work in us. So we look for your equipping so that we might really do your will, that your will would become our will through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.